Escape from Plan A. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, I'm your host for today, Adam. Uh, and um, just some housekeeping. Uh, you know, please support us on Patreon. Uh, and we've started also doing uh, YouTube live streams. So head to our YouTube page, subscribe, um, like the videos, um, follow, uh, r- hit the notification, all that. Uh, with our Patreon, all of our funding goes to um, other than, you know, some administrative costs. Um, we try to take all that money and, and put it to writers. Um, but so with all that out of the way, um, I'm here with our special guest, uh, Yasmin Nair, who's um, an amazing writer. And uh, Yasmin, happy to have you on. Always delighted to be on here. Thank you, Adam. Absolutely. And um, I guess for you know anyone who doesn't know who you are, um, shame on them <laughs> first. But secondly, um, if you could just give a short introduction and, and background. Sure. I'm a writer based in Chicago. Uh, Occasionally describe myself as a writer, academic, and an activist in Chicago. But for the most part these days, especially, uh, I'm just engaged in a lot of writing. I am also part of a group called Gender Just. Uh, We've been fallow for a little bit, but uh, we're getting back into the stream of things soon. Um, And other than that, yeah, I'm based in Chicago. Um, I'm looking out at a lovely Chicago view of Chicago buildings and a little sliver of the lake and really excited to talk about um, what we're going to talk about today. That's right. And uh, thank you so much for being on. And and it's always been um, great sort of getting to know you through the years and and reading your pieces and and talking to you. And I actually spent a little bit of time in Chicago on my own. So um, I know Chicago a little bit. Chicago is a beautiful city. Uh, and, um, yeah, but yeah, so sorry. Yeah, I didn't know that. Which part of Chicago did you live in? Um, where did I live? I live sort of out in this, I, I lived, um, not, not in this, uh, not in the loop area, a fair distance away from the loop. Um, I forget exactly what it was called. Everyone is a fair um, distance away from the loop. <laughs> They, yes, the, yeah, that's very true. Except the very yeah. rich people, everyone's a fair distance away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the time, I, I moved to Chicago because my brother had had been living there for a while because he he followed <laughs> a girlfriend out there, and um, I had lost my job in New York City, and it was right around the financial right. crisis, right? And I was like, you know what? Uh, why why pay New York City rent? Uh, you know, let me go out and sort of hang out with my brother, and he, he had a friend that lived near him that needed a roommate and it was obviously a lot cheaper and i was like i can look for a job anywhere right we have the internet um so i was there for a few months it was really nice i I like it i like chicago um it's one of those idyllic old new york uh, uh, old you know american cities that i think is sort of not forgotten but it like people sort of forget it was like one of the major major cities right it's one of the oldest cities um and uh yeah so um we 
we are we wanted to well first of all i think in a, in a sense like we we always wanted to have a conversation between the two of us anyway yes just cuz we've always you know had a good relationship and and um i read many of your articles over time but one of the articles that um struck me not because of its thoroughness and but mainly because of its topic was the article that you wrote um called adopting difference race sex and the archaeology of power in the Pharaoh Allen case. And the reason why it struck me is not necessarily because of the sort of salaciousness of the Pharaoh Allen case, but because someone who is not adopted, right, um, was writing about this, and especially yourself, who I respect so much. And, you know, and as I was reading this, I'm like, this is, you know, it really sort of fits into a lot of how I've sort of come to think about adoption. Because it was really attacking it from the viewpoint and lens of like the, of power, right, and influence, and sort of the history of of international adoption. Because, and and you know, so so that you wrote this article in uh, 20, uh, 2014 originally, and I think you know, sort of um, people, you started talking about it more in twenty twenty. And then um, because of the uh, Pharaoh, was it Pharaoh versus Allen? "Quote unquote" documentary, <laughs> "quote unquote" indeed. That right, "quote unquote" indeed. Uh, that was aired on um, HBO Max. And that was sort of like the immediate catalyst for uh, for this conversation. And you know, I, I want to be clear to the to the uh, listeners that this isn't going to be a podcast like reviewing and sort of dissecting too much that documentary specifically. But it is a good entree to talk about. As I said, uh, sort of power, um, you know, uh, uh, influence, and uh, sort of the history and the international politics aspect of internet of international adoption, because of not only Woody Allen and his sort of and, and the fact that he's adopted children, but Mia Farrow, and so uh, I guess I, I've talked enough, but uh, but but Yasmin, like. You, know, you wrote this article, and like, we've watched the the documentary. Um, but you know, w- please, please come jump in here. Yes, thank you for that. And uh, you know, my writing. I mean, if if you if anyone were to ask me, so what is it that you write about? You know, that five second elevator talk that you're supposed to be able to give people. I always want, just want to say power. I write about power. I write about power dynamics, power relationships. And to me, you know, everything is about power, about structures and hierarchies, about who has real influence, who has influence, who it's always, how do you change the world? So there's this guy, um, Bill Dobbs in New York City, who has been a longtime gay activist, and he's also done some incredible work around sex offender registries in particular. Uh, But he was once profiled in the New York Times, and I remember him saying, he said, it's what I'm interested most in is about power and how to get people to change their minds, right? Power is about Mm -hmm. getting people to change their minds. And I think in activism and in... I don't, first of all, I don't think, uh, I just want to be clear, I don't think writing is activism. I don't think it should be. There's a whole discussion to be had around that. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, ba- yeah, yeah. I think bad writing is writing that claims it wants to be social justice. So that's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that if you want to, if 
what you want to do is to effect change in the world, you have to figure out how to exert power, really. And in order to sure. do yes. that, right, and in order to do that, you've got to understand how it works. And I think that in recent years, what is interesting to me is that quote-unquote movements, we're going to use that phrase a lot, quote-unquote. There's a quote-unquote documentary right. we're going to discuss, and there's a quote-unquote couple of movements we can also discuss. But the quote-unquote movement is the Me Too movement, uh, which is yes. really, you know, which claims to be about, and the whole Ronan, I think the reason that the Alan Farrow documentary gained as much attention as it did this just this last what month or so is precisely yeah. because it's riding on the tails of the Me Too movement. And what is interesting right. and fascinating about the Me Too movement is the role of Ronan Farrow in all of that. Yes, a, which you could say that he basically launched it he, you, in a sense. Exactly. Right? And despite the fact that Ronan Farrow, and we'll be talking more about this perhaps later on, Roland Farrow is no journalist. Roland Farrow is not no. a critical analyst of power at all. But Roland Farrow has become so integral to the Me Too movement, and the Me Too movement has become, you know, has ha, is now positioned as this explosive moment of freedom for women mm -hmm. in terms of being able to disclose their old, um, uh, the old. Um, moments of abuse that they've endured, all of which incidentally are, you know, I mean, it's completely legitimate to have to do that. And of absolutely. course. So of we course. want to be, you know, we want to be clear on that. But I think what is, inter what is interesting to me about the whole, you know, when I first wrote this article, when I wrote this article, Farrow, Ronan Farrow was not an integral part of any of this because that had not yet right. happened. Um, but I have been, first of all, full disclosure, Annie Hall has defined my life ever since right. I was a child, yeah. right? And let's be clear, like, uh, and I'm 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 a little bit younger, but I'm not young. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my, you know, Woody Allen and and his movies sort of were a big part of my childhood as well, right? Uh, and and I wouldn't, I don't know if I would go to the extent that you might in terms of how it might have defined, you know, your yourself and your who you are, but. It certainly had a big impact on me because my parents loved Woody Allen, and and my my father uh, is a New York was a New York Jew, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and when it comes to people sort of being, I think overinflating um, sort of the cultural relevance of Woody Allen, you can't over it can't be overestimated how much he meant to uh, New York. Uh, Jewish people, exactly, right, exactly, and you, uh, you know, in a sense, you could say that you wouldn't have had a, a Jerry Seinfeld without a Woody Allen, right, right, um, and it's not like Woody Allen created the um, uh, uh, that um, Jewish entertainer space and cultural space, but he was uh, incredibly important to it, right, uh, and expanding it to be more uh, popular to. Um, to, to to the wasps, right? Yes. To, so um so that so so it's, he's it's not like we we 
we we liked Woody Allen's movies, right? We're not like just straight haters who've never watched a Woody Allen movie and anything like that. Yeah. And so, you know, that was part of it, you know, my interest in Woody Allen, certainly, but also my interest in uh, questions around adoption. I'm originally from India. And as you know, India yeah. has been, in the past at least, has been one of the hotspots uh, for international adoptions. And yeah. the I've I've always been interested in this idea of the family. That's always been an interest for me. Absolutely, the family yeah. is, you know, as you know, a lot of my work has also been critical of uh, gay marriage, for instance, and of marriage period. Yes. I'm also an arch feminist, you know, pro abortion, yeah, all of that. So and so, it seemed to me that the whole Woody Allen, Mia Farrow matter, and the fact that it was implicated so much in questions around. T- you know, that was so um, wound up with questions around transnational adoption just made it a really potent place at which to perform a kind of really long, in-depth critical analysis of what the power relations were in all of this. Yes, We're talking about a very, very, I mean, again, you know, even putting aside how, what one thinks of Alan or not, we're talking about a very powerful, you know, white male filmmaker whose cultural influence worldwide i think has also yeah. you know we cannot underestimate his cultural influence globally which is still uh something right. that's still very potent and then i mean he's able to make films in, in europe, europe now, now right? exactly I mean, europe picks up his films where the u.s might you know will not i think his last right. film a rainy day in new york um uh, was picked up was not picked up in, in france yeah, was right? picked up in france so you know he's going to be fine and he's um, and I was also really intrigued by Mia Farrow because I've also been intrigued by qu- issues around white women, right? And yes. to me, this whole business of a white woman adopting and or rather having, right, between biological children and yes. uh, adopted children, she's over, I think, altogether had had, cumulatively over the years, has had 15 children. And to me, that's bonkers, Right. That's I mean, lot. it's completely freaking bonkers. So what intrigued me is that where, for instance, a black woman, right, um, mm-hmm. particularly a black poor woman, you know, the, the whole welfare queen discourse and all of that, but where a black woman would have been marginalized, stigmatized, uh, and so on, this white woman was being fetishized and idolized even for having and because for for having all these children when you really want to look at her and think there is no way any single human being can be quote unquote a good mother and here we come to the quote unquote because i'm also fascinated by this idea of the family what is good parenting what is a good family right i mean let's face it the family is fucked right everyone who's in a family the most (laughs) happy idyllic family basically the family structure alone is a fucked up organization within which to survive as a human being. Those of us, yeah, and and yeah, right, and 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 the ideas of like sort of the tra- the traditional family, um, you know, the, the the family unit of a mother, father, um, two and a half children, or whatever. Um, this idea, like th- th- that concept, that is tried to be pushed as sort of like this age old concept. Is not very age old, right? Right, exactly. Right, it's, it's, it's a I relatively mean, new formation. It's certainly. a rel- right, and so is marriage in the right. concept of of what we think of as marriage, right? right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you write in your article about how you know if a black woman's children, uh, even when present in the single digits, 
are separated from them and funneled into the foster and adoption industries. And it's an industry, right? Yes. So I mean, some people might read your article and even see the word adoption industry put together and sort of bristle at it. But it's an industry, right? I mean, it's a billion dollar industry um, where people work in it and 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 the children are sort of the, the commodity within that, right? They're the item of trade. It's a highly right? because, unregulated industry as well. Right. And it's unregulated too. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and it's one of those, and it's an international industry, exactly. right? Because yeah. it's not just something that happens within the United States. Because talk, because because, uh, and I'm sorry, I might be going off on a tangent, and maybe we, we, and I'll let you continue. But we'll talk about the power dynamics that it takes, that it took for Mia Farrow, and it's not, and it's not just her, right? And I think that's what's also important to note is that she might be what is a fairly extreme example of this but there are many many celebrity women who have adopted multiple children and they have done it in ways that is are not available to anyone else mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right right and that's because of power exactly right this is <laughs> so right so there's you know the fact that right you know just to take up that thread of the family again you know there is no such yeah. thing as a quote unquote healthy family certainly Although many of us, you know, many of our friends and the people we love, yes, have had families that have at least been somewhat nurturing. But, you know, conceptually, the family, there's nothing intrinsically great about the family, which is, again, one of my big issues around the gay marriage movement was this push to not only preserve, but to even heighten the, uh, what I would say, the, tr- uh, yeah, right? the throttling importance, you know, the the, the, yeah. the sort of tyranny of the family, right? That's what happened with the yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. that aspect. And then, yes, exactly, as you point out, you know, Pharaoh is part, so that, so all of this was interesting to me, you know, there was a question of white womanhood, there was a question of the idea of the nuclear family expanded through uh, the sort of relentless, exhaustive sense of, a, a, you know, adoption as if children were just dolls that you bought in the market. And then there right. was this question of, yes, what, what role that played within an imperial and sort of American and American, uh, context. As you point out, you know, it's, it's a global phenomenon, yes, but it's the United States that's kind of the center from which yes. radiates yes. this deep, desperate desire supposedly on the part of people to have children. Right. Now, that does, now, and I think you and I have both talked about this, right? Neither one of us thinks yeah. that adoptions should not happen. Right. And, well, and, and I say that also because I don't think it's a um, practical thing, <laughs> right? I don't think there's ever going to be, like, I don't think it's ever going to happen that, like, adoptions don't exist. Exactly. Because it's sort, of like the, the, it's sort of like the Pandora's box has been opened, right? right? Because we won't get into this too, uh, too much, but I do want uh, to note that Adoptions as like a concept that we know them now didn't always exist, right? I mean, certainly there were orphanages. Certainly there were o- there have always been children that, um, for whatever reason, um, don't have caretakers. So there has always been there have always been situations where children have been taken care of by people that did not give birth to them or or were not their fa- like family, right? But the concept of a legal adoptions that, that that we think of didn't always exist. Right, but I think it's a situation where, as I said, the P- Pandora bo- Pandora's boxes is, has been opened. We can't put it back in. The, you know, we can't put it back. So it's going to exist in some form or another. 
But I also don't think it needs to exist in the way exactly. that it exists now in perpetuity. Exactly. And I right? think what we're going to come to, you know, as we talk today is, fine, adoption exists, it's happening. What can we possibly do to fix that system? What can we do to make yeah. that system actually work for the children and adults involved? You know, so you're, you, you and I are both really interested in that question as well. But Absolutely, in order yeah. to get there, what you and I are trying to do today is to really think about, well, how did we get to this terrible place? First, we want to talk about what is this terrible place? Because I think a lot of people listening in might also be thinking, well, but it's wonderful. All these children get homes, loving homes. And right, wouldn't you right. want these children to be happy and so on? And I think so. I think that takes us then to exactly the issue that you raised, which is this question of celebrity. And I think this is why you and I are both also interested in the Woody Allen, Mia Farrow yeah. matter, because there's this long history of adoptions, particularly international adoptions, becoming yes. hot sort of celebrity things to do over the over many I would you know decades as long as decades, Hollywood yeah. has has really existed so we have I mean even before Joan Crawford but Joan Crawford is sort of one of the most famous examples mainly because her adopted daughter then wrote a book as a grown-up titled infamously uh, Mommy Dearest which was also made into film starring Faye Dunaway but you know Joan Crawford ha had to adopt children because Joan Crawford had several relationships and i think you know um, a couple of marriages including one to i think it was the pepsi guy uh, but despite all of that remained quote-unquote childless and for a woman mm -hmm. in hollywood to be single and childless was just beyond uh, stigma so she ended up doing right. this very public you know you had all these publicity photos you can still see these this very public adoption of uh, i think her name is christina and uh you know, it was a way to affirm her value as a woman, basically. that's It was yes. a very gendering move, right? So you have that, and that has continued historically. Uh, you have had, for instance, right. more recently you had Sandra, you know, we'd, more recently we've had Sandra Bullock, for instance. Who was, yes, that's right. And you write mm -hmm. about the circumstances of that. Right. So, yeah, sorry, no, no, ahead. she was so. engaged. And then just to give examples to the audience of what adoption has performed for women in Hollywood, right? So Sandra Bullock, right, right. and that's what we're getting to is that adoption is a strategy. It's a public PR strategy. And that in itself should remind us why adoption is such a horrific mess these days, because right. it has become a horrific PR uh, strategy. So, right. Cause, cause as mm -hmm. yes. Cause aside from the celebrity um, men and, you know, couples and, and, but particularly women that are doing like single women that are doing this um, for um, sort of their edification and their PR reasons. There are non-celebrity women and, and families that do this for their own selfish reasons. And which sort of goes counter to the narrative or um, sort of, uh, or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, uh, it, it hides. Yeah. It, 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 um, it obscures the fact that you know the it's not for the child's benefit right. for the most right. part i mean right? so for instance it, with it, sandra bullock if i could just you know yeah. that that no, sorry no, no. yes go I ahead i just wanted yeah. to finish that anecdote which is that sandra bullock was engaged or and actually married to a man who turned out to be, uh, well, I wouldn't, I don't know if there's a, if such thing. There is, I guess there are ex-Nazis, but he had Nazi ties, which he had to have known <laughs> yeah. about. And, it, well. Right? He had the tattoo, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> he had the tattoo that she must have seen every time she went to bed with her. I, I missed it. I don't know. <laughs> it was always 
under the covers somehow. Maybe it was on his yeah, bum. Like, the lights were yeah, off. Yeah, the lights you know, were always off. I never knew that he had this tattoo. Oh la la! Oh no! Uh, but uh, you know, so and, but he he had an affair first, and that was mortifying right. for her. But then, and in our society, that's always more embarrassing for the woman to be, to be honest, to be, to be, which to be, is awful and sexist. But that's just sort of the way right, it is, right? right? So he had an affair, and then it turned out that he'd also he was also he had these Nazi ties. And I, right. in order to recuperate her public image, uh, she ended up adopting a young black child, a young black boy, uh, Louis. Uh, and uh, then I think more recently she's also adopted. And you have brought this up: the fact that she adopted a young girl out of the foster care yeah. system. And there's that yes. dark you know the sort of episode yeah. of the, there's that whole dark world of foster care no pun intended because foster care uh, children are almost always uh, that you know so i did not mean to have a, a pun there but foster care children are almost always black uh, yeah that was, not, that intended. was not intended i'm so sorry <laughs> um, you know when i was in grad school there was this whole mood thing about you know we have to be careful about the language we use and docs you know and i'm like okay, i see it yeah. i see it i get it i get it i'm so sorry yeah. Uh, but yeah but most foster care so dorothy roberts has written extensively about the about yes. in a book called shattered bonds about how in foster care what happens basically is that black women um have their children taken away from them and we do mean taken away um, yes. and placed into foster care and then funneled into adoptions without the women's consent or desires, yeah. right? So it's yeah. a terribly murky system. Dorothy Roberts writes about black women, who, one black woman who literally, literally lost her child in the system, as in the yeah. number assigned to the child just disappeared. And she had to spend years looking for her child who had that's disappeared. So, I mean, that's how horrendously inhumane it is. Yeah. And we want to think about, you know, and here we are being very deliberate. We do want to think about the the fact that such things remind us, should remind us of plantations. Yeah. Right? The ways yes. in which yes. black women have had their children taken away without their consent is very much, you know, it very much reflects the ways in which black women's rights to their children, their reproductive choices, uh, their, mm -hmm. all of that has always been denied to them. So that's also, I think, and you have yet, despite all of that, you continue to have stories like the one I read recently where Sandra Bullock says, you know, I, yes, I got her from the foster care system and that's what a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to do. And, and the, the mm -hmm. article praising her for essentially having rescued her child. Right. And that rescue sort of white, save, savior mm -hmm. language is just incredibly prevalent right, right. Uh, in the whole industry. Right. So you've got adoption, you know, and then we get to, that's in the domestic sphere, and then we get to the international sphere, which we also want to yes. talk about. And what you and I have talked about, right, is the fact that over the years, there have been different hotspots for adoptions. Based, yes. And that those shift based on the United States is, you know, imperial interest. Yeah, exactly. Right, and imperial right, interest. Right. So yeah, absolutely. Is China, you know, and you have the sort of Perlis Buck kind of vision of China as, you know, this fecund uh, place from which to derive children. And China has this massive population. So it was, it used to be China. I mean, I forget the exact, um, you know, order in which all of this happened. It was China. Then for a while it was South Korea. 
And yep. it was India, yep. definitely Bangladesh, right? Bangladesh, that's always yep. being hit, hit by famine and floods and so yep. on. And I think then Africa, of course. Uh, yep. And then yep. more recently, we saw, I think, especially in the 90s, right? We saw it was Russia. And now it's yes. Ukraine and so on. So based on uh, you know, based on where the U.S. Uh, uh, looks outwards for, you know, its own imperialist projections and fantasies is where you get a body of children. And then Haiti, for instance, right? So yes. when yes. the Haitian earthquake occurred a few years ago, there were we were reading stories about how children, again, were being rushed out of the country. Um, right. Vietnam, Vietnam, I think we skipped over a, a Vietnam, second. But, Cambodia, uh, but Vietnam, we can talk about, um, yeah. you know, uh, Angelina Jolie. Uh, right. I think yeah. her first child, Maddox, whom she adopted, was Cambodian. And yeah. Then she's had at least two African children, one Vietnamese child. At least one or two of those children's parents have actually returned to say, we never, yeah. we never agreed to this, or this was a different kind of arrangement we had hoped for. Now, um, the other thing about, you know, to, to keep in mind about Angelina Jolie, just in terms of U.S. American, U.S. adoption policies, or even just U.S. reproductive policies elsewhere, is that when Angelina Jolie had her, her quote-unquote birth child with um, Brad Pitt, Shiloh, they chose to have the child in Namibia. Um, and they insisted the entire, I think it was Namibia, they insisted that the entire country just shut down. <laughs> Why did they choose to go to uh, Namibia but, to have uh, That I don't recall. I think it was because they felt that there were too many press people after them. So, uh, and they gave money to the government, uh, they gave $315,000, which is a massive amount in any African country. They gave $315,000. And it right. returned, but a drop in the bucket yeah, to the uh, exactly. Jolie Oh, it's nothing. Yeah, it's 1%, if yeah. that. Um, and in return for that, they got, you know, an entire hospital to themselves. And they got a guarantee oh that God. not only were the press kept away physically, but even the airspace above them. Uh, was protected. So this is. So they basically bought a government. They bought a for government for the birth. Yes, and then they made a big deal about the fact that Shiloh might someday also have, you know, an, a passport from the country. From yeah, the exactly. So which was supposedly a big deal. So, but but just the sheer. It's not even audacity, right? It's this kind of ownership, and this appropriation, and this territorial expansion of one's womb, <laughs> literally. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the point being that this whole business of transnational adoption is mired in these very complicated, long-term, convoluted intersections yes. of American imperialism abroad, but also the imperialism of whiteness, really, domestically. Because even yes. when we're talking about and I think what struck me, I was going over my notes yesterday, and the thing that's, and also watching that HBO documentary, which we'll talk about, <laughs> you know, in terms of race, the yeah. thing about adoptions, especially transnational adoptions, 
even when they involve white children from Russia is, and especially perhaps because, I mean, the reason why Russian children suddenly became this hot commodity is because American parents said, oh, white children, we can, we, we can, yeah. we have, we now have a, you know, a seemingly endless supply of white children, right? Right. Because domestically right. it is actually very hard. Or not, I don't know if it's very hard, but it is harder and it costs- to adopt a white child who, without disabilities. Right. Right. Um, than it is, you know, a black child or any other um, race of child. Um, so yeah, so it makes sense that mm-hmm. they would suddenly be like, "Oh my God, we have a supply of white children that we can adopt." And for a while, Romania was also a player. And I think yes, they, yes, there, yes, right? that's true. There was yeah. Romania, and uh, you know, and even there, then yeah, race then still plays a central role. So again, then when we now, then we re- when we return to you know, when we watch the HBO documentary. And we return to that whole scenario of the Alan Farrow uh, drama, as it were, and specific, yeah. specifically Mia Farrow's construction of this supposedly blended family. We can't help but notice what her, some of her other children have pointed out. Like Moses Farrow has talked about the fact that you know the brown children, uh, the Asian children, were definitely marginalized in contrast to say the white children. So. And I yeah. think when we think about, you know, the whole Dylan Farrow episode, all of the charges and all of that, it's, first of all, it's very hard to keep remembering that Dylan Farrow was herself adopted. Yes, she is not the um, birth right. child or the biological child of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen. She was a domestic adoptee. About whose, you know, and her story was never really discussed in great detail. There were no details about her. Yeah, that's true. Right? So that we weren't told any dramatic details of, oh, her mother was X and this happened, blah, blah, blah. Right. Whereas with every single one of the children of color, whether they were black or whether they are, you know, whether they're Asian. Asian or, There's this yeah. big dramatic story. With Sunni, in fact, the stories are p- particularly horrific. So horrific that you know that they're lies, you know. <laughs> yeah, there. Um, I mean, and, it, and it, it particularly hits me because I'm a, I'm a Korean adoptee, and um, the way that they talk about her and her back and her history in Korea, and um, that like she was basically like a wild gangster child on the streets, you know, sense. like running with like a, you know, running wild with a pack of like other children, and um, it it really. Um, it's actually it's it's offensive, and I don't say it's offensive because oh my god, you need to feel offended because I do, but it's just sort of that's how I react to it. It, it it's 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 dehumanizing, um, it's salacious. It it it's it it. I I only have to think about like what's the relevance of this when it comes to why we're even talking about her, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 in many times in that documentary. I can only think that they mention these things to one make to mainly make Mia Farrow look better, right? It, it's it's in service of burnishing the image of Mia Farrow, um, and it's not even with Sun Yi necessarily to make Woody Allen look bad. It's just basically to be like, you know, to continue that narrative of oh my God, you know, Mia Farrow did so much to rescue this girl who is basically like a feral wolf child or something. Um, and you know, when you it, it taken in the context of how much people in America really even know about what Korea was like in the seventies when, when Sunni was 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 living was, was born, and the reason why Korea was you know the way it was, 
because of the United States and the Korean War and all that stuff. Um, it's particularly egregious, right? Because it's like it's just sort of trying to set up this fact that, like, you know, and and we're going to talk about sort of the power that went into having to even uh, allow Mia Farrow to adopt Sunyi because, well, and because Sunyi because uh, Mia Farrow had to change U.S. law, she had to get an act of Congress to be allowed to do this, right? Yes. Um, so I mean, all of that together, it just sort of is like it, it, it's. It's infuriating. It's very angering to me. And obviously, you know, the whole situation and the reason why Sunni is even a national figure um, is is very, you know, it's controversial. But aside from that, I just, I feel like she's been used a lot, you know, as Dylan's been used. You know, they've been used um, and no one really, no one really cares about them. Right. Right. No one cares about their well well being and, and their story. It, and which sort of mirrors a lot of the way that the adoption in America mm-hmm. is done. It's not for the children. The message is there, right? It's always it's for the children. We're, we're you know, we're making sure the children are better. But in the reality, it's about who's doing the adopting. It's about the adopters, right? So Yeah, it's about the adopters. And yes, exactly. And in this documentary, you see the sort of blazing power, right, of whiteness, of white supremacy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Of all the whiteness, all the white- right? I mean, not just, just Mia Farrow, just, but just all yeah, the whiteness. All the white. I mean, it's just sort of, it, it erupts, right, in these these gigantic explosions. I mean, even in the way, and she's written about it and she talks about it even in the documentary. She says, well, you know, I I didn't, I, I felt like there were these children who need, who had been abandoned in places like Vietnam. And I, I you know, we were thinking, <laughs> cool, you know, this is, this is war-torn, this is a war-torn country right. where the U.S. has stepped in and made life horrific. Who's abandoning these children? I mean, yes, it may right. be abandoned in sort of a technical sense, but right. But if you if you get murdered and you right. have a child, did you abandon, did you abandon the child? child? Exactly. <laughs> you have a bullet in your head. Are you abandoning your child? You know, with Sunni, there's this horrific story she gives about. Oh, right. you know, she was uh, she was just wolf like, and she was with this pack of, and she even says very pointedly, she says with this pack of boys. You know, in, in yeah. intimating that there was all of this sexual stuff that Sunni must have gone through in Maureen Orth. I mean, Maureen Orth is a journalist who's written for Vanity Fair about Mia Farrow a lot. And basically, I don't know how else to put this, but basically kisses Mia Farrow's ass a great deal. They're friends, They're friends right? exactly. Aren't they family friends? So yes. That's a whole other complicated, in my in my sequel to, this, uh, to these pieces, I'm going to be writing exclusively on Maureen Orth, actually, because that whole episode is itself quite murky but Maureen Orth actually repeats this fable of how you know she didn't she was only speaking gibberish and as someone in Jezebel even pointed out but if she was speaking gibberish how did you know what she went through Uh, so there are all these contradictions but I guess the larger point here is that right you know so you have this woman who um talks about rescuing uh, these children from countries that the United States has ravaged so yeah, and this then positions her as you know a white savior, kind of a literal white, literally savior. a white savior. What is all ignored, and what's interesting about the documentary is that you all there's only I think there's one photograph at the very end, for instance, where you see her one. Uh, you don't you know the point I should make first is that there's no mention of the fact that three of her children 
No fewer than three of her children have died under terrible circumstances. They were all yes, very tragic, very tragic very horrible circumstances. One, uh, and when we post the articles, people can read the details. Uh, yes, and we yeah, will. Yes, but, we'll, we'll we'll link to all that. You stuff. know, one died of AIDS-related complications sometime in the nineties, yeah. which is, you know, it's almost impossible to die like that now. Right. Uh, and, and in and poverty, in po- too. AIDS-related complications and in poverty, despite being the adopted child of Andre Previn and Mia Farrow. The other, right. uh, Locke, I think it was, um, supposedly had a heart seizure, but uh, as her brother has pointed out, more likely committed suicide. Locke was one of the right. two blind children. And then yeah. there was Thaddeus, who, would, who had been adopted, I think, from India, was also a paraplegic who shot himself to death a block or so away from Mia Farrow's house. And if that's not a bloody that's statement, horrible. I don't know what is, right? So, <laughs> yeah. And, and full disclosure, sorry not yeah. to interrupt you, but full disclosure, um, I do have, uh, I, I guess, an acquaintance with Moses Farrow. I did some work with him around the issue of um, mental health for adoptions, for adoptees. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've spoken to, to, to Moses, um, you know, we, we have, I would say, hopefully a friendly relationship. Um, there was some drama around that organization, especially because of sort of what he said and, um, publicly about, uh, you know, his, his adoptive father, because Moses is one of the, uh, children that was actually legally adopted by Woody, uh, and Mia, First by Mia and then um, by Woody, uh, and um, so you know. Uh, just full disclosure, there. You know, I, I'm yes. not. I'm not coming into this completely from the outside, right? I mean, obviously, I'm not part of the family, but I do know Moses a very small amount, <laughs> and I don't know Moses at all. Um, but I've read his account and I've watched the documentary. I've actually done a lot of research on the whole adoption drama debacle. And I will just say very confident. And again, full disclosure in the sense that if people haven't guessed already, I don't believe the account of abuse of Dylan Farrow. I should just say that up front. And I, you know, that it's not so it's not that it colors my perception of Mia Farrow, but that it just confirms what I I think. So for me, the issue around this, transnational adoption and the Faro-Allen debacle is that people are using that adoption, right? Her multiple adoptions now, in essence, to right. justify the idea that Dylan Farrow was abused. Now, yes, was, yes, it's used as ammunition right. in that fight. Now, yeah. I think my point w- is that if we are to just take that, you know, if we are just to take away even the question of whether or not Dylan Farrow was abused, which is obviously not something we're interested that much in doing today. But if we, so if we were to even take that away, we will still have to say that the issue of adoption within that family had, was very clearly, evidently, a really problematic knot entanglement yes, of issues that 100%. there is no way that was again let me just say this first there's no such thing as a healthy family as far as i'm concerned fine you know what is healthy right many people are happy in their families you know tolstoy blah 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 you know all healthy is, uh, is yes. healthy? healthy is a weird right. word to exactly. describe a family, so what right? does that mean even all that being said you have to look at the situation and say 
there are all these strange ways in which this woman is fervently running around the world, collecting children as if they're dolls. And then you have three of her most vulnerable children yes, right. die in these terrible circumstances. And right. quite frankly, you know, if you're going to give me all these home movies, then I am going to look at the home movies and say, why is it that in almost all of these photographs and these movies, it's the Vietnamese children and the Korean child? Why are they always in positions of being almost like the nannies to the little white children? I mean, they're always mm -hmm. hold. It's almost as if the adopted children are then used as childcare in effect, right? If you look at right. even the home movies, and there's, there's always this emphasis on the two little blonde white children, that's Ronan Farrow and Dylan Farrow. And so it is impossible, looking even from the outside, even at a cursory glance, to not understand that there is some strange racial dynamic in this family, yes. first of all. Just visually, you, you get all the cues. That's one thing. Secondly, I think, again, Putting aside the question of abuse, secondly, there is no way in hell that a family of 15, that a woman adopting 15 yeah. children, having 15 children, is actually able to, quote unquote, be a good mother, whatever that means, right? Right, right. Especially when she's working mm -hmm. pretty much full time as an actress, right? I mean, during the whole relationship, she's making multiple movies a year. Uh, with Woody Allen. And her right? claim I mean, is that, you know, she, I mean, again, you know, we don't want to get go down the road, obviously, of saying, oh, working women and children, but 15. Well, no, I'm just 15, saying she's. 15. Right. <laughs> right. It's a lot. Uh, and I'm not saying that because you can't possibly do that. I'm just saying that um, you're going to be busy, right? You're not always in the home. That That's sort of like what why I mention right. it. And especially if you're an actor or actress, um, I can only imagine that you're you know if you're on location um or you know even if you're even if it's like being filmed in new york and you live right. in new york you're still on set you know you're still away from the home working it's a very different right? setup from being an executive yeah. or being you know an office worker it's a right. very different set of circumstances right Absolutely. and i don't mention it to be like you can't right, right. as you say it's not possibly no, be a good mother that, yeah. i'm just it's just saying that the the number and just the type of profession you're right. in and the time commitment. And I only raised that. It's going to stress. Right. And the reason I raised this for that is that you could clarify that because I could just hear, you know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is why I also raised it because I knew that was where, you, where you. you were coming from. So, you know, even just look, even from the outside, this is a terribly unhealthy situation. And if Mia Farrow had, been had not been white, you know, again, blindingly white, the right. other issue that I think, um, you know, again, we're talking about power and adoptions, and we're talking about the different complicated histories that play into all of this. So you have Mia Farrow, who's presenting herself as, you know, this helpless uh, woman who, at the end of the documentary, says, I'm actually scared of him, and so on and so forth. But, you know, Mia Farrow comes from a much older Hollywood family than Woody Allen's, for instance. Woody Allen's family is not uh, has, yeah. has not been in... Uh, in in films and you know he definitely probably has more money but there's a whole political and literary and you know sort of cinematic uh, network a film network that she's able to draw upon which which allowed her for instance to adopt Sunni despite technically right. not you know legally wasn't allowed to etc cetera, etc cetera. so 
you know, and, and then you, uh, you have Ronan Farrow using all of this to leverage his career as a journalist with Me Too. The point being that there are these very complicated intersections of power and different kinds of hierarchies that come into play that I think are getting erased. And also what is interesting is that I, I just read yesterday an article that said that she literally erased one of her children. I think it was Locke, perhaps, um, uh, from mm -hmm. a photograph. Um, so there's a <sighs> photograph when Ronan was very young. They met Hillary Clinton. I think it was, I think it okay. was Locke, um, the, one of the children who died. And Locke and Mia Farrow and Ronan met Hillary Clinton. And sometime in, I think, 2004, perhaps, um, there was a photograph of, you could see Locke in that photo. And then later on, um, Locke was erased, literally. She's been erased from that photograph. So in light of, you know, the new documentary, people have raised that again. And her claim is that, well, that's because we didn't want to, you know, revive painful memories. Why not? I mean, what are you, what are you doing by erasing a child? And how come it wasn't important for you to not be reminded of those painful memories? And again, in the documentary, you see no mention of the fact that three of these children have died. There's only one no, photograph. No, no, yes, there's none of there's that. There's only one none photo of, of Thaddeus. Uh, there's only one photograph, I think, of him, maybe two at the most. Near the Near end. Near the very end, exactly. Near the end, very end. Exactly. You know, so the literal erasure of the children who didn't work out, as it were. <laughs> right? right? These right. are our, these yes. are my failures. Look at these children. Oh, this one is my failure. Sunni is my failure. Right. This one is my failure. We're just not going to no. talk about the ones who died. Right. And and when you when you put it that way and 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 we when we're talking about this. It makes me think about and and as I was watching this and and this isn't unique to Mia Farrow. Let me be clear. This is an issue broadly when it comes to adoption um, overall. Is the idea of attachment mm. right? And constantly throughout this documentary, Mia Farrow talks about attachment, attachment, attachment. Usually, it has to do with Sun Yi, but. I can't imagine it's limited to just Sun Yi. Uh, and I, when, so when you're talking about how, you know, uh, certain of the children have been erased, like Thaddeus is barely there. Um, you know, Lark was literally photoshopped out of a, 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 of a picture. Um, I can just think about how it was so important to her, uh, this concept and this idea that she, um, uh, yeah, that they have this uh, connection that that she has an attachment, right? This attachment, uh, and um, it makes me think. Well, it's like these these children didn't attach to me exactly the way I wanted, or the way I think of it. So it's my failure, and I don't want to think about them. And even though I'm legally responsible for them, I don't care. I mean, and that's horrible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's also, and it reminds me of the ways in which adoptive white parents in particular, I think, not all, again, we want to emphasize that I have, you know, I, I know people who have done fine with adoptions, fine. Well, sure, but, my parents. Right? <laughs> I have friends who adopted children, you know, from Africa, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in general, the discourse around um, white, white adoptive parents and children from, you know, quote unquote, broken homes and so on is that. Mm -hmm. If things don't work out, it's you were not obliged. You're not obliged to actually work on it 
on that relationship as you would if this was your biological child. That's right. right. So yeah. what shocked yeah. me, for instance, is that Sunni's adoptive, actual adoptive father, people tend to forget that um, so, Woody Allen Andre, was not her adoptive yeah, father. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It was, it was, um, was it Andre very, Previn? Very famous. Yeah. Uh, she's Sunni yeah, Previn. Yeah, Sunni that's Previn, right. a very famous and wealthy uh, composer uh, who had also adopted Locke. Uh, and um, so he literally just completely disowned her. I mean, he just refused to have it. And how much of a shock. So, you know, all these people in the documentary say, well, you know, she was always withdrawn. She never quite assimilated with us. And I thought, of course she didn't. I mean, she was with this yeah. father, this adoptive father for about a year. And then she was moved into the Woody Allen sort of, you know, you know, that, that environment. Mm -hmm. And then when she finally did, you know, when she, got together, however you want to describe it, with Woody Allen, her father, her, her you know, the one father she had known yeah. basically said, she's not my daughter anymore. Now, and I think what is important to know, and, I, and I'm also thinking about this Russian child, I forget his name, yes. right? He was, I think he was eight, perhaps, uh, or 12, at the seven, he was I seven, think. and he was adopted by a white woman. And then because he did not work out, she put a note on his coat put him on a plane and sent him back to Russia, which is why Russia now yep. is pretty strict, I think, I hope, about adoptions to the United States. And so I think what, what I think, it both hurts and shocks and provides uh, at the same time, you know, um, uh, an engine for critical reflection, the fact that adopted children are considered, uh, they're not even, cons they're considered disposable and returnable. Like a yeah. kitten that you get from a shelter and who doesn't, or, a, or an older, I mean, I, an older cat that doesn't get along with your child, for instance, and you return, you know, rehome, right? You rehome. Yes. And in fact, yes. what is really horrific and what people should know is that rehoming is actually now an adoption strategy. It happens. It's happening, and yeah. it's actually happening at levels that, again, because adoption is so unregulated, rehoming is much more common than people realize. It is. Um, we'll share a link to a Reuters um, series, uh, investigative journalistic series that I, I is fantastic, and I think it was done in 2010 or so. But it's about this rehoming phenomenon and this rehoming practice, and about how. Um, and it, it, it focuses on rehomings domestically because what will happen or what can, what happens in some circumstances is that, um, and we mentioned Russia. So, uh, there'll be children who are, um, adopted from Russia or from Romania or, or from other, any other country that sends children to America. Uh, and, uh, the, once the child is in America, uh, there isn't a lot of follow-up from the agencies. There's no tracking. There's no sort of like, you know, how is this going? What, what, uh, what, um, what, uh, what support can we provide? Right. There isn't any of, there isn't a lot of that. I mean, there, some of them have gotten better or whatnot, but not every adoption also is done through, um, an accredited sort of agency that the government knows about. Um, the United States does allow, um, private adoptions. Domestically, mainly, I think those are done domestically, where just a lawyer um, is involved and um, does some paperwork and talks to 
the families or or the people, and sort of allows this you know, facilitates the adoptions, right? So um, what will happen for in the international adoption side is that uh, you know uh, children will be adopted into the United States. Um, sometimes they're older, sometimes not, but at some point the family might be like, yeah, you know, this is too hard, right? You know, the child didn't attach to me the way they should or whatever. And um, they, you know, and, and in this Reuters report, you can read about this. There, there are groups on Facebook, Yahoo oh. groups that when it was a thing, um, I'm sure there's some like subreddits and just there are corners of the internet and not just like CD corners. I mean, Facebook is Facebook. It's not a CD quarter of the internet where people will create these groups to rehome their children. Where they will, um, and and rehome is a, a fairly actually um, controversial term. I think there's some more technical oh. terms people use, but I think uh, I'll continue to re- use rehome just because I think people understand that better. But you'll go, to, you, people can go to these groups and just be like, "I have this child. Does anyone want him or her?" And there are th- this journalist uh, documents this, and they literally people will go, and they will just. Go to a parking lot somewhere, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and exchange the child, yeah. and then that child will go from that family to another. That's it, and it's not regulated. It's not even necessarily against the law, which is sort of the, you know, it's not even necessarily against the law. Uh, and um, yeah, it's it's, it's horrendous to yeah. think about. It's horrific. I mean, you know, both my cats, who are both now dead. Both my cats essentially were rehomed from the same home to me when they were older. And yeah, because but they're the, cats. The cats, you know, <laughs> and they had issues because one of them just hated dogs. Toby hated dogs and they got a dog. And Toby's like, fuck this motherfucker. And they were coming, <laughs> and they were coming home and finding him cornering the poor 50-pound dog. You know, the dog was like, <laughs> and, you know, and then Toby got rehomed with me and then his sister followed up, you know, soon after. Sure. But, you know, and we all bonded and... That that's a so I guess the point is that I I think I'm actually glad you're using the word rehoming because I think rehoming yeah. is something that actually emerges from the pet adoption world. So it I is think it's yeah, actually it very appropriate that we should right. use it to describe what's happening because these are human beings who are treating human children. And keep in mind, uh, listeners, you should know I am the original cat lady. I think cats and animals <laughs> are above humans, but I am telling right. you that it's very different, right? That right. it is actually right. a bad thing to treat yes. humans who do have very different emotional, you know, um, emotional, uh, they're not less, but they're different needs. A human being is a human being. A human being is scarred right. for life when you rehome them in a goddamn parking lot in the dead of night or not even the dead right. of night. I think it's more like, ice cream. no, it's probably in the middle yeah. of the day. Oh, let's all go out for but, dinner yeah. now. You know, would you like ice cream? Do you know if you like ice cream? Do you speak? Uh- <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's not even, and these, these aren't even these, I mean, it's awful to do this to infants, but these are oftentimes well, teenagers, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yes, know, yes. it's, um, it's, uh, it's a very, and, there was um, a very highly publicized, well, not highly publicized, but it was, um, I think, a fairly well-known situation where um, a, a family vlogger, which I think family vlogging is its whole other topic where I feel that's uh, it's a sign of the apocalypse that we even allow that, but um, a, fa- a, a fairly well-known family vlogger um, 
you know, they had a few, I think they had three, two or three biological children, and then they decided to adopt a child from China with special needs. And they made money off of this child for many years, for a few years. And then he became too difficult for them to handle and they rehomed him. And it's difficult for me. Obviously, I, you know, as we've been talking, I think the rehoming practice is very, very um, damaging. But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? They didn't do it in a parking lot, right? They did it sort of in the more uh, responsible way, quote unquote, through an agency and things like that. So in my mind, it's awful that it happened. It shouldn't have happened, but it did happen. And it's better that he's with somebody else that's going to actually try to take care of Mm -hmm. him than to exploit him for money. But it's sort of, it's a very complicated thing in that particular, the stoffers, if you got, if people want to look that up. Um, but we'll post a link to that know, too. Right? Yeah, it, it's it's a very complicated situation. But in general, it's like nobody. And I think I've said this to you before, um, Yasmin, is that, and and, and you were t- mentioning it right now, is that um, there's no there's there's no tolerance in our society in America as as awful as it is um, for a. For, for parents to just abandon their children, right? They're, like no one would be like in the same situation, right? If you, if you, if you had a child, if you were married, if you're a married couple and you had a child, then you decided, you know what? This child is too difficult for us. We're going to give them away, but they're like eight years old. No one would be like, wow, how brave, yeah. right? Just, and not, you know, l- let's assume that they're not like incredibly destruct- destructive or whatever or violent. But like, let's just say that they were just a little difficult, they were autistic, and you just didn't want to handle them. No one would be like, yes, you should do that. But because this child um, with the Stoffers was an adopted child, yes. people sort of give them a pass. Mm-hmm. They're like, you tried your best. Right, right. <laughs> right. You know, good of you. You know, you yeah. tried your best. Don't feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you made a hard decision. Right. Uh, and there's no... And there's no like consideration for the child in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I'm glad you, you bring up autism because I think what is also then interesting about the narrative around autism right now is that, you know, when it comes to quote unquote, you know, birth children, however you want to talk with the biological children with right. autism, the discourse right now is let's give autism autistic children everything they need, you know, all the resources right. and which is great because it's so different from Yes, absolutely. Even 10 years ago when it was horrendous. Uh, But when it comes to, right, children who are adopted and who just demonstrate signs of autism or any other, you know, what we what we call learning disabilities, whatever it might be, it means the bar is right or developmental challenges. The bar is so low. Right. I mean, the bar is so low. It's like if you had a child, if you had a biological child with let's say a learning disability, you get tutors, you try to find resources. To help that child when it's an adopted child, right. and there will be calls from Absolutely. activists to be like, "We need to support these families right. so that these right. children can." I you think know, the whatever. dehumanizing. I think would be you know the fact that the the ways in which race and dehumanization are so inextricably linked together in yes. the midst of trans, you know, it, it, are so linked with transnational adoption, race and dehumanization. And that is something that, you know, even if it's, I think the Faro incident is, is the most potent example we have right now, but it's something yeah. that 
is continuing, right? If we look at whether it's celebrity adoptions or, as you point out, you know, this, you know, the vloggers, the family, you know, the family vloggers or quote unquote ordinary people rehoming children in parking lots. The intense dehumanization um, of human beings. um, I don't know what else to say because I'm just sort of reeling from the shock of it all, you know, and the ways in which that is so intensely racialized. And I would say not just even in, but especially perhaps with white adopted children. Because they're seen as unsatisfactory goods. I think the white adopted children who are sent back to Russia, for instance, almost, I would say, perhaps even perhaps have a double burden to bear, which is that they have somehow become race uh, race failures, you know? Yeah, it it is an interesting thing to think about uh, in terms of, yeah, because you're, yeah, because we, we, I think we assume that um, non-white children are going to bear a, a a deeper burden or, or more difficult burden because of their race. And they do. Absolutely. Certainly. Racism alone. <laughs> it, right. And they do certainly, but there is sort of that, you, uh, I guess a unique or a different racial burden that the white child might, might bear um, in that situation. Right. It's like you're, you, you are supposed to be the good right. one, right? You are not supposed to be sort of defective. And it is an interesting thing to think about. Um, and, and I, yeah. But- Sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, I was just thinking, you know, about, uh, you know, children adopted from Russia, Romania, you know, Eastern European countries. Uh, now, you know, you, a lot of them have come out of really troubling political and personal situations. I mean, politically, especially in countries where there are no resources, uh, there's, right. there's, there's the kind of hunger and poverty that we don't want to associate with white people because we're just not used to that, right? Like, oh, how can that be? It's like Bangladesh um, and so on. And, you know, and also the psychological issues, for instance, I, I know I've read reports around Romanian children, for instance, and even Russian children being raised in places where there's no physical contact. They're just literally placed in, you know, pens and cages and so on. And so, of course, these children have, you know, often debilitating and often lifetime emotional and psychological problems. Of course they do. Right, I mean, yeah, on top of just the fact that you are adopted. And and people don't, I I don't think people like to think about the fact that just the fact of it, just the mere event of it um, is damaging, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Uh, And and then, you, you know, you, 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 you layer on top of that sort of the situations that they might have been in before they're being adopted. Um, like you were mentioning where if, you know, if they were in some sort of home where they, there was no con- physical contact, you know, there was no care- caregiving, no. Right? there was no caregiving. They, going. they are in these places that are essentially conveyor belts. You know, if, they, if they're, right. you know, they're lucky if they convey, if they're lucky if they have like one nurse to, you know, floor and things like that. So it's, I mean, the situations are pretty horrendous. So you get that. And then you get the adoption of um, children in, you know, brown countries. I mean, so again, thinking about celebrity transnational adoptions, you have Cindy McCain, the wife of uh, ex-senator, you know, John McCain, who went to Bangladesh on some sort of a random trip and found you know, these two children, one of whom had a cleft lip and decided that they were not going to get the chances they would have in the US. And with absolutely nothing but her diplomatic immunities from her husband, 
picked up these two babies, brought them to the United States and looked around at her friends and said, hey, I have an extra one. Do you want this? She did not even tell her husband, John McCain, that she was bringing a child. Now, mind you, it takes a long time to fly from Bangladesh back to the United States. That's a long ass yeah. trip. And I'm sure on the plane that she was on, she could have contacted him at least midway. Doesn't tell him before. Or, you know, before she got on the plane, you know, before she gets on the plane, has no contact with him during this long ass flight, gets off the plane and John McCain looks at her and says, what's that you have two babies? Then he goes, "Uh huh. well, that's just like you. Okay, what are we going to do with them? Hands off one other baby to a friend of hers. Again, as if these were surplus gifts. Look at these cute wooden right. dolls I found in this adorable little antique store, right? Here, do you, I have yeah. an extra one. Would you like one? Gives the extra child to a friend of hers, right? Again, all of this is completely, as far as I can tell, as looking into... It's completely illegal, illegal. Completely illegal. But again, because of her particular status and so on. And years later, then accuses, you know, a random woman at an airport who I'm sure, who I'm sure was, who I'm sure was a woman of color, accuses this woman of color who was probably with a whitish child of yes, um, trafficking a child. Ki- yeah. And kidnapping, right, right. right? And that whole thing blows up. So I think again and again, you know, it's, um, I'm just, tr- I, this this whole situ- this whole set of situations just takes my breath away. But I feel I keep trying to come back to the analytic register, right? But right, right. the things that happen to children, the thing, the ways in which children and babies are treated as disposable commodities, is so horrific that it strains my analytic register. It yeah. does. It, it, it makes yeah. it hard to right. stay in, I mean, right, because you don't want to seem heartless. You don't want to seem sort of like, and I, you know. And it's, but, and it's just, yeah, but at the same time, I'm just like, okay, but let's now let's analyze it in terms. But, you know, all we can say is that this is a form of, this is a kind of legit, you know, there's a lot of discourse among white liberals and progressives and many leftists as well about the quote-unquote horrors of trafficking, and they usually mean sex trafficking. And all of that, yes. most of that discourse is complete bullshit for reasons, you know, that we can explore in an entirely different podcast. Yes, but yes. there is this trafficking of children happening in quote-unquote yeah. legitimate ways, in humanitarian ways, during quote-unquote humanitarian crises like Haiti, like, you know, I'm sort of wondering about now the pandemic in India, as you know, is raging. And it oh, is yeah, dystopian. I mean, horrendous. It's dystopian. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah I mean, there was um, a video that was being shared on um, on Twitter where two two sons had to uh-huh. transport their dead mother between them on a moped to the morgue. Right, right. Like her, their mother was dead. So, you know, this is a dystopian uh, world that India finds itself in. I'm, cu- you know, curious about what the fallout will be, you know, in terms of... Yeah, as that's with right. Haiti, for instance, I'm sort of curious as to what will happen to, you know, the many infants and children in a country of one billion, which is also, by the way, a very young country, not just politically. Right, that's right. In terms of its yeah. demographic, it's a very young country. I'm sort of... and. Now, the fact that many of these children will probably, you know, be infected by the virus might make them less desirable. I don't know. But at the same time, they're little brown bodies. Um, so I'm sort of curious, yeah, yeah. you know, I want to keep my eyes on that as well, because India right now is um, systemic, this just systemic collapse. 
I don't know who's watching what. The only thing is that now, of course, you know, flights out of India and into India being curtailed and yeah. so on. But, you know, that the, here again, we have a hotspot being created, right? Uh, right. Like Haiti right. was. So I'm sort of curious to see what will happen. Um, yeah and it reminds me of because you know we, we talked about south korea which was like a former hotspot of of the this the, of of adoptions yeah. um in to america uh, and to other countries in the world but for the very most the majority into america and you know that was sort of catalyzed by the the korean war and uh korea was you know merged from that or south korea and north korea merged from that uh and um you know, it, South Korea for a very long time is actually behind North Korea in terms of its economic development and, and its infrastructure and everything. And so they made very hard decisions of who are we going to support, who are we not going to support. And in that in that context um, of you know, because the society basically collapsed because of the war and everything, um, they you know that that's what uh, you know adoption started from. Right, and it's extended for a few decades, right? So it started in the fifties, and it extended a few decades into, um, you know, the eighties when I was adopted, and and it still continues to this day, but at much lower volumes. But so when you when we're talking about India and sort of the disaster that's unfolding and the and the collapse there, and when you mention sort of like what what's going to happen to the children of these adults and and people who are dying, I just think about like, you know, sort of the circumstance of like. Korea, and it's obviously not exactly the same, but there's going to be this um, economic strain oh, right on the country, yeah. and this economic strain and the strain on the infrastructure, right? And there was already a strain on the infrastructure, and this is sort of, um, and this is showing that weakness, right, and that strain. And it's like, it, yeah, so I can very easily see um, a, a sharp uptick in adoptions from india to the united states and to europe and other places even even if they might be sort of infected by covid you know they they didn't they're not sick they didn't die so even if they had it you know they're okay right potentially uh and um so i could yeah i could definitely see mm -hmm. that and it's sort of like a pattern and I, that's why i'm i'm sort of mentioning yeah. the Korea stuff. It's, it's this pattern that we're seeing yeah um, you know, people keeping, out. you know, lots of people keeping their eyes on all of this. I'm sure a lot of evangelical organizations here. For instance, oh, right? yeah. I know, for instance, that in the Korean adoptee community is so large that, as I understand it, even now they have annual meetings. Yeah, oh, we do. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's immense. Right. That's that's a huge. And what is interesting to me, and forgive me for, you know, making a situation that is obviously painful for so many into one that is interesting. I don't mean, to, no, you know, but it is, it is in a sense remarkable and interesting that you have a kind of a global consciousness that emerges yeah. within this particular community of people whose one unifying feature is this matter of adoption. And yeah. that in itself, and I'm sure there's a lot of work that's been done around this, but to me, it's curious, oh, yeah. right? It's a, it's a very curious formation of a certain kind of globalized consciousness around this matter of adoption. And that is interesting. Yeah. That's really kind of fascinating, right? To think that it you, is, it is. And yeah, that yeah. you have something in common with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the world, precisely because yeah. what is interesting about it is that despite the fact that you're all in very different locales, your, your 
because I have read many Korean adoptee uh, narratives yeah, yeah. and interviews and so on. What is interesting and fascinating and often very heart-wrenching is how similar your experiences are. I mean, obviously, many have yeah. good experiences, but a lot of people report abuse, especially because a lot of Korean uh, children are adopted by extreme evangelicals. Sometimes, I mean, not yes. just, you know, Christians, but no. yeah. right-wing evangelicals. A friend just described uh, her family as people who, thought, who think the Sistine Chapel should be brought down because it has naked bodies. <laughs> like, just, Oh, wow. Uh, I've never... <laughs> yeah. That's a yeah. thing. I mean, so this is extreme right-wing wow. conservatism. So there is that connection between Korean adoptees and you know this kind of evangelical uh, American mm -hmm. ideology, and that well, and that's yeah. also part of the domestic yes. adoption stuff exactly, as well. Exactly, um, exactly. Right. So yeah, it's. Um, I mean, even in no, it is interesting to me too that um, there are so many Korean adoptees around the world that we have enough to sort of we do have this like shared community and consciousness right uh, it, it, yeah i'm struggling to find the right word for it but like we're you know and there's been a lot of writing there's a lot of thought um there are many more people a lot smarter and, and more educated than i am um who have written about this but you know we're we're like we're trying to find our place within the broader diaspora exactly right? you've created a diaspora but, yes yeah. But we're our own almost separate yes, diaspora, exactly. right? Because we're not, we, we're a diaspora in a way that is very unique yes. or just different, fundamentally different, fundamentally different than the rest of the Asian diaspora mm -hmm. around the mm -hmm. world. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, it, um, I've met many, many great people. Um, but yeah, like it, it's, we, we have a connection. And um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting to me that other people find it interesting, but as I've as I've met more and more people, and I, I've been you know through the Plan A and through this podcast and just sort of my own um, interest, you know, a lot of what my experience has been, I've been able to connect to other diaspora people. Uh, I've been able to connect to other Asian Americans and, and Asian Europeans and Asian Canadians, and um, <clears throat> because you know, I don't know, we just have a connection, but. Uh, this has been an amazing discussion. <laughs> I don't want to cut it off, but we are, uh, we're oh. at almost an hour, 20 minutes. Um, and, uh, did you have any, did you, did you have anything that you wanted to sort of close with? Because certainly I think we'll continue to have this conversation and, um, you know, many, <laughs> hopefully we'll have many further discussions and, and as we, we've, we've posed other topics to talk about, but did you have anything that you wanted to sort of make sure that we mention. Yes, I mean I do want to, you know, conclude in a as we must, but I think I I have been thinking a lot about what can be done. Um yes. and I think for me I want to say and, and I know I know that you and I both agree on this, which is to say that, you know, adoption itself is not an ugly horrible, horrible thing and in fact no. We may have actually, you know, as I hate the word civilization, but, you know, as people, as human beings, it is probably a good thing that children without uh, uh, some sort of a family support structure find places where they can be nurtured. I think it's 
really absolutely. important. One of the most beautiful stories, and again, I don't know the circumstances of his adoption, so who knows, but one of the more beautiful stories about adoption is I read once was uh, about Marcus Samuelson, who is yes the the chef who is a swedish uh chef but was uh i think he was from originally from somalia i want to say yes i believe so he's a, yeah, yeah he's a, oh no maybe ethiopia but anyway but he's uh but he is uh but he was adopted in sweden and one of the more beautiful ethiopia, from ethiopia yeah. thank you and one of the more beautiful stories he tells is of his grandfather who took him on this uh because Swedes do this sort of thing, took him on this fishing trip, which is apparently some sort of a, you know, Swedish assertion, affirmation of some sort of masculinity. Okay. I yeah, so, get, some yeah, coming of coming age Coming of age thing, and right? you go with your grandfather and you fish and you bond, right? Sure. It was so beautiful <laughs> because his grandfather, who is this white Swedish man, was insistent yeah. that his grandson must go through this because that is what you do, you know? Sweden. Yeah, that's that's what you do when and you're Swedish. And it was yeah. beautiful, right? And and yeah. every time I've heard Samuelson talk about you know his upbringing and his family, it's been nothing but love for how he was raised. And I think you know, absolutely. So I think I think there, as you know, cynical as one is, perhaps about you know what does a family mean, one also understands that some families do things right, and also adoptions. You know, I have friends who have adopted children from various places, and it, I know it has worked out, you know, and it can be a beautiful, affirming thing. And for me, I think the question is, as people like you and I are concerned about what is happening in the worst circumstances, and we're also concerned about the fact that there are so many, so many more, it seems, horrible spots of adoption than there are really great ones and what can we do to change that and i think one thing that we can keep yeah. agitating for right given that you and i both have these sort of networks that we can speak to constantly that people that we know and we know people in social justice circles we know people in therapy circles and so on i think what we have to all of us you know all of us listening to this even collectively we have to start insisting that there needs to be, first of all, a larger cultural discussion about how adoption is inherently attached to and implicated in these terrible domestic and international histories of racial yes. domination. And that yes. racial domination comes out not, you know, is, is made evident not only in the adoption of children of color, but in you know the adoption of white children, like these Eastern European yeah. children who are brought in here, right? And so we have to start making that conversation heard. We have to have that conversation, we have to amplify it, and we really have to push for tremendous changes. We have to, you know, yes. I know that you and I are, are the kind of lefties who are like, you know, we don't, <laughs> you know, we hate the state, but we also think that there are points at which the state needs to bloody well step in yes and this, yes and yeah there needs to be so much more transparency there also needs to be less stigma and shame i think also a lot of mm -hmm. adoptive you know i think i feel for adoptive families right the the ones that are trying to do it right i really feel for them, yeah right? absolutely because they are in a situation where they know there are all these awful people out there who are really fucking it up for the rest and, you know, mm -hmm. how do you have a conversation about race without either fetishizing your child or, 
you know, demeaning them? And how do you have those conversations that allow the adoptees to talk about their experiences with dignity, right? Right, and honesty and, honesty and transparency. And yeah, exactly. Right? And yeah, and 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 allow them to speak in their own voice about what right. happened and however they feel right. about it. And right. Also, can we please have a public conversation about this? That is not just yes. about saying I, you know, we we just are not having that conversation, I think, because, again, of the ways in which whiteness is constructed as the ideal. And that yeah. is what we see in that pseudo documentary that you and I both endured. You know, thank <laughs> yeah. goodness it was only yeah. four episodes, by the way. I was afraid that it was six, and I thought, oh, God, I didn't. No, four hours, four is hours enough. was enough. You know, but I think that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in closing, what I really want is um, is 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 a change and a, and a different conversation, and we I want more frankness, more honesty. I fear for all of that because right now we're so bound up with celebrity culture that we yeah. are not critical about how celebrity has become bound up with the intimacies of our lives, right? Um, yeah, I mean that's a whole another topic too because not only has celebrity gone from sort of the traditional realms of entertainment but polit- polit- politics, right? And everyone now and is now, a celebrity. Yeah, everyone is now a celebrity. Every, the the parasocial I mean n- not that it didn't exist before, right? N- not that the politicians haven't had, you know, a, you could say you could make an argument that um politics is always about has always been about creating a relationship to people, right? But they never seem to be, at least in my mind, in the same same realm of celebrity or um, relationship as a movie star or a TV actor <clears throat> or actress. But now it's sort of blend; it, it's blurred, right? I mean, Obama is as much a celebrity as he was a politician, right? Um, Trump was as much a celebrity as he was a politician or a leader. So, um. But yeah, no, uh, uh, very well said. Um, I think certainly maybe the next episode we'll want to talk about how we might want to, the things that could change. I think something that people should be aware of, and and we'll have a link to this, is that uh, the Netherlands has has, um, just halted all international adoptions going forward. Um, They, you know, they... Uh, uh, adoptees in the Netherlands um, through many years of advocacy and tireless work um, finally got one of their governments to um, seriously, yeah, and just kudos to them, to those adoptees and and their allies that really effectively pushed for this, but they finally got one of their governments to um, comprehensively and over many years, I think a few years, study the history and the current, not just the history, but the current practices of international adoption in the Netherlands. And the conclusion of this <clears throat> study was that there has been such um, a, a documented history of abuses, yeah. <laughs> uh, and not just privately, but within government, um, that their only choice was to halt all future adoptions. I mean, the current ones that were underway were going to be allowed to continue, but any future ones for the foreseeable future. I mean, there, it was just 
we and and and, and as, as we were talking about this and 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 preparing for this podcast the the what really struck out stuck out in my mind was that there was a sentence that said just a, a phrase that said basically and paraphrasing that they don't know if they're ever going to be able to continue start it up again i think that's that's how bad that's it was so that's how bad that, it was that, right so you know i i don't know if i could ever see the united states making that bold of a, 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 a of a of a policy sort of step but you know it's it's not that necessary and you and you put this well um yasmin is that it's not necessarily that um you know there that there aren't good outcomes or that you know advocates like myself who say that we need to look at this we're not, i'm not and and we talked about this much earlier in the pod it's not that i'm some sort of like traditional family evangelist like i i am not that is not what I'm, I'm when I say I, I, I advocate family preservation, it's not that I want to make sure that every child has a mom and a dad and whatever. It's that I want to make sure that people have the choice to do what they want, and they don't need to be coerced. They don't feel coerced or forced into the decision. And what's what what we see is that people just don't have the means to keep their children if they want to keep their children, and. That is sort of where I'm, I try to think about. We want to, you know, the United States talks about how we're a country of freedom and choice. That is not freedom if you feel like you need to give up yeah, your child right. because you don't have the ability materially to give, to, right. to, to, take, to raise right. them. And there's a fine right? line, I, you know, and you and I have talked about this, right? There's this fine line between like the Elizabeth Brunigs of the world who, who, who talk about, yes, let's. Or yeah. women keeping their children when what they really mean is let's end abortions period right there's a, right right there's right and and i am yeah. yes and i'm staunchly anti right. uh, not anti i'm pro-choice right, right. as well so there is, that. is that like yeah right because I, it, it upsets me to no end when i'm when i see online or in in real life or on twitter or what what people using adoption in their anti-abortion right. anti-choice rhetoric to say well don't have an abortion right adopt right, a child right. it's, it's like again and that is not what i mean and at again, all. I does mean, that not remind us of how we talk about animals you know don't, yes don't it does. use breeders use for <laughs> yeah yeah foster right yeah yeah don't go to a breeder yeah. which um, i agree with to, yes because breeders are all sure but yeah but that same again and again what we see are these parallels between animals and adoptive children you know adopted children but right. yeah, so I think absolutely. I think you know, as with, for instance, you know, uh, m black women whose children are shoveled into the foster care system. What we need yeah. to do is to think more broadly about how do women, and particularly black women with children, how are they? How can they be supported rather than having yes. their children taken away? Exactly. Give how, how can all women? How, all women, how can all women's know, children? I mean, honestly, yeah, all, yeah, all women give people money. You know that is. Has to yes. be the universal solution. I mean, <laughs> this goddamn pandemic has taught us that that you know. It's, it's honestly just give people money. I mean, that, that's honestly the. I mean, if I were to be like, what? What's your? If someone were to put a gun to my head and say, what's the solution, or what's one thing you could do? I'd be like, literally, just give them the give money. Give them the money and give them the money to 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 make ends right. meet, and that that that'll be good right. enough. And you know, not good enough, but that'll be one. Exactly. That is that that one right. thing will go the right. longest. Right, that'll have the most right. impact. And I, uh, and you know, and there, and I'm sorry, but like, there was even today I was seeing that 
um, this sort of abuse in the this abuse in the CPS system of the child protective child protective services, it's extending to the to Asian families now as well, um, where they make up these excuses where they're like because a lot of Asian children are born with like a bruise that or a birthmark that looks like a bruise. And there's and and some social workers are using that as evidence that they're being abused. That is so I um, I cannot. So I mean, that's just another you know that's just a newer for me at least a newer um, f- thing that's happening that I wasn't aware of. But there are a lot of situations in with black women that are more documented or well more well known where it's it's just as sort of ludicrous. Yeah. No, right? uh, and yeah, so it's this is um. Yeah. This is a this is an issue for every exactly. everyone. And I think, you know, again, kudos to the Netherlands. And I I do and I think again, because the United States is so goddamn large for one thing, and uh, yeah. it's very hard to bring about a change like that. But I would advocate for and I would support anyone who wants to advocate some sort of moratorium. Sort of a moratorium. Yeah. There has to be a moratorium. There's gotta be a moratorium, you know. So I mean, whatever I can do to amplify those voices, uh, you know, I, 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 I would be happy to do. And um, it needs to this this kind of, you know, um, the dehumanization of adopted children needs to end, and that's what's happening. It's a racialized yeah. dehumanization, regardless of the race of the child. It's racialized, and that uh, yes, that's yeah, that's very. It just true. needs to end. I think that's a good. <laughs> Good message to to end on. So, thank you so much, Yasmin, for for joining me on this podcast. Uh, and um, you know, hopefully, we will be able to do one again. But thank you very it's much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, great. Bye now. Mm-hmm.